Hey, everybody. Hope your Thanksgiving was uh, fantastic. And I appreciate you uh, tuning in here on the weekend after Thanksgiving. Glad to have you here. I've got a, um, I've got a message that I think might resonate with some of us and uh, just going to kind of take a casual approach to sharing that with you today. That's why I'm kind of sitting at this table and uh, it's just kind of a good way to wrap up, I think, this series that we've been in here at Eastside called Burned. And what we've meant by that, uh, that concept, that wording, is what would you do and how are you supposed to react when people burn you, when people hurt you, what are you supposed to do about that? And so we've spent a few weeks here at Eastside talking about that. We're going to wrap it up uh, this weekend. And I got to thinking as I dealt with this uh, final message in this series about how we started it three weekends ago. And uh, we talked about what was called a first-degree burn, the most mild of all burns physically. It's a red spot or maybe a, a little pain where you, you touch something hot. And we related that to what we call relational burns. And a first-degree relational burn is when you get irritated. Somebody just irritates you. And so this week... When I started writing the last message in this series, my mind went back three weekends ago when we were talking about first-degree relational burn irritation. And I've got to tell you what happened that Sunday. And I think this is really, uh, really kind of fascinating to hear that. I woke up that morning, uh, Sunday morning, bounced out of bed, ready to go to church, just like I always do when I'm preaching. I love to do what I do. And I woke up that morning. I knew it was going to be a great day, starting a, a new series. But another thing that was going to be a great day was that right after church, the Dallas Cowboys were playing a football game, and uh, that's my team. If you know me, that's my team. And so I woke up that morning, okay, preach, new series, Cowboys are on, so it just, you know, bounce out of bed. And I go downstairs to the house, and before I leave to go to church, I went to the television. I was going to uh, record the game, and I found out that it it wasn't being shown on the television service that I have where I live. And I remember looking at it going, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the, the first time in a long time, uh, my Cowboys at least are somewhat decent and they're not showing the game. And so I, I jump in the car and I'm a little irritated and then I realize I'm going to be preaching about irritation. And so I come on to church and man, we had a great day, just like they all are. And I had, um, I kind of lifted my spirits a little bit because I came up with plan B. Uh, my wife happened to be out of town then. Uh, she was down in Florida watching our grandkids and so uh, babysitting them. So I thought, okay, after church, I'm going to go find me a little restaurant down on the river. We live in a town by uh, a, a big river, and so there's a lot of restaurants along. So I, I'm going to go downtown, and we'll find one of those sports grills, got all the TVs, and I'm just going to, you know, Susan's out of town. I'm going to go down there, have lunch, enjoy the day. 
they watch my cowboys. And so I go down, down on the river. I find one of those sports grills. And they got all these TVs. And I say, hey, you're going to have the cowboys on? And this little sweet little girl at the at the desk said, yeah, we'll put the cowboys on for you. She goes, but but the, the Colts are playing, and everybody here is for the Colts game. So we'll put the cowboys game over on that TV over there in the corner, over in the, spar, the, the, the bar area. And I said, well, you know, I really don't like, uh, you know, sitting in the bar area if I can prevent that. And she said, well, you know, everybody's here for Colts. That's what we got over in the corner. And I said, all right. So I went over and I sat in the corner, sat at this little table, got TV right in front of me. And my waiter comes up and says, I, I say, hey, man, she said, we can get the Cowboys on. And she go, he goes, yeah, man, we'll put the Cowboys on for you. I said, awesome, man. So I, I order my meal, but he doesn't put the Cowboys on. He's still waiting on everybody, and I'm getting irritated and irritated. And I finally give him the little, little hand wave, and, and he comes over, and I said, hey, man, can you get the game on? He goes, oh, man, I forgot. And so he goes, yeah, I'll get it for you. And I said, okay, and I'm looking at my watch, and the game started, man, but it ain't on TV. Got Colts everywhere, no Cowboys. And he just it goes on and on, and the longer it takes, the more frustrated I get, irritation starting to rise up. And finally, the guy comes back. I said, dude, the game. He goes, oh, man, I keep forgetting. And so he took my order. He goes, I'll go get it right now. And so in a few minutes, he brings back. He's got my order. Here's your lunch. He goes, dude, I'm sorry. We don't get the game on our televisions, man. We don't, we don't get it. And I was like, are you kidding me, man? It's almost through the first quarter now, and I don't, I don't have the game really. So I choke down the 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 burger, and I pay, and I, I take off, and I go find another sports grill down there. I walk down there, I look in there, they got TVs everywhere, and there's the Cowboys. They got the game, and I go over there, and where's it at? Over in the corner by the bar area. Are you kidding me? So I go over there. My irritation's way up here, but I'm at the game, man. I'm watching the game. And the Cowboys stunk that game. They were horrible that game. And I'm I'm sitting over there yelling, Dak, come on, man, that's a terrible throw. I imagine people were looking at me saying, man, the bartender ought to cut that guy off or something. And finally at halftime, I'm just so frustrated. They're terrible. I'm not going to walk. And I just walked my car. And I sat in my car. I'm going to head on home, forget the game. I'm irritated. And it was at that moment that I sensed two questions of which both of them, I believe, came from God. And I didn't hear anything. You know, I didn't see anything. I don't want you to think any of that. But some of you know what I mean when I say there are those times when the Spirit of God interrupts you and says, can I have just a second of your time? Question number one that just kind of hit me. Hastings, did you really mean what you just told all those people back at church? That when you're irritated, hold it back, let it go. Hold it back, let it go. Leave it alone. Did you really mean that? And then the second question was this. There are people out there who would trade your first degree burn for their fourth degree burn in a New York minute. So quit whining. And that's what we've learned in this series 
I hope you've been with us in some of these messages because what we found out is that every burn gets worse. And today, as we close it out, we look at the deepest of all burns. See, first degree burn, I'm irritated. Second degree burn, now you've made me mad. I'm angry. Third degree burn, what we talked about last weekend, confusion. God, how could you let this happen? And today we hit fourth degree burn, disabled. The burn is so bad. I've been hurt so bad. I may not recover. And even if I recover, I will never, ever be the same again. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been in that dark moment? I mean, physically, a fourth degree burn gets past the burning of the skin. It goes through the epidermis. It goes through the, the dermis. It goes through the hypodermis. And a fourth degree burn affects the bone and the muscle and the tendons. And most people who get fourth degree burns do not survive. Now, fortunately, relationally, fourth-degree burns, whether they, whether they come from a person to us or just from an imperfect world, fortunately, they don't happen to everybody. They certainly don't happen all the time. But when a fourth-degree burn shows up in your life, you don't get through that alone. You, you do not recover alone. When I became a, a minister... Um, a gazillion years ago, I remember thinking that it was, you know, you'd preach on Sundays and you'd, you'd visit grandma in the nursing home and you'd eat some fried chicken dinners at the chairman of the elders home. You know, that's kind of what I thought ministry was. And what I quickly found out and have known now for more than 40 years that ministry really is trying to help people make sense of fourth degree burns. And I've got some names here that I've changed to protect the disabled, but man, nobody told me about these people. Cassandra will have to live her adult life with the memory of her childhood abuse by the next door neighbor. And marriage will be a struggle for Cassandra. And that's, that's fourth degree, okay? Jerry's going to have to figure a way how to provide for his family after a, a co-worker falsely accused him of a violation at work, and that led to his dismissal, and that led to the loss of his home. That's, that's called fourth degree. Lewis and Greta will somehow have to show up at their family holiday gatherings this year without their five-year-old son who died of cancer last spring. Fourth degree. What in the world does Robert and Sharon tell their grandson when he asks why his mom, who is currently in jail, shot his dad, who is currently in the graveyard? See, that's, that's not irritation. That is beyond anger. That, that, is, that is partly confusion, but man, it's way past that. Disability shows up. Normalcy is forever gone. That's, that's fourth degree stuff. Lori is just having an impossible time getting rid of the image of her husband with another woman. Same problem that Patricia's having and Chuck and Josh and Annie and Caroline. And, and you, you get the point, the horror of fourth degree disability. 
and nobody gets burned at that level and fixes it with just hold it back and let it go. It takes far more help than that. And so what would God say to you if you ever found yourself there? What, what would God encourage you to do? What would, what would God say, this can help you in a really dark spot? What would you tell a friend who finds themselves there? And I, I thought through that as we we're going to wrap up this series, and, and my mind just kept going back. You know, where does God's word give some help in this? And, and I just kept going back to the Psalms of the Old Testament, and, and they, they're actually musical songs, if you've never heard of that, that were written by old, um, in days of old. And they're songs of emotion, and some of them are celebration, and man, what it's like to be on the, the, the top end of the mountain, and then there are other times that the lesson come from the deepest of valleys, the, the fourth degree valleys, and the, the, the Psalms have a lot to help us here. Many of them were written by King David, um, the leader of God's people in Israel for 40 years. And, and man, in 40 years, you got, you got a lot of victories, and you also going to have a lot of wounds. You're going to have some life-changing wounds. You're going to have some fourth degree stuff in four decades. And there's places in the Psalms where David dives into those. And one of those is Psalm 27. In the 27th Psalm, David is finding himself in the thick of a fourth degree burn. I want you to hear some of the things he says at the very start of it. He said, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh. The third verse follows it up in this, in the, excuse me, in the second verse, when enemies attack and my foes come against me. And in the third verse, though an army besiege against me, the war break out against me. In the second and third verse, he just kind of brings up the reality of where he's at right in the middle of a life-changing, disabling battle that he's having in his life. And we're not really told what that battle is. We, we, we really don't understand what it is, but, but we know this when we read it. This, this, this is not irritation. Irritation is child's play compared to this. Second degree of anger, that, that is so far gone from David right here. That, that is in the past memory. Confusion probably is hanging on, you know, God, what are you doing here? But it is, it, it is beyond that. David is disabled. David is in the middle of a fourth degree burn. And, 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 he, and he says, what, what does God want me to do here? I don't know what brought up the 27th Psalm. Sometimes we know what was happening in David's life when he wrote. We, we don't know this one. I, I wonder, though, I wonder when I read it, I wonder if it had anything uh, to do with his son Absalom. And we, we don't know it, but you, you might be aware that the third son of David, Absalom, and David, they had a very contentious relationship. It, it just wasn't a healthy dad and son. And, you know, you, you, you think about that, and, and there are few things that throw people into fourth-degree debilitating burns like family relationships that go awry, particularly parents and kids. 
And there was something going on with David and Absalom that just, it just wasn't right. And there's signs in the story of those guys where it seems there were times when it might be getting a little bit better. But in the end of the day, Absalom builds this coup and begins to take an attack upon his dad's kingship. He wants, he wants his dad's throne. And you got a dad and a son that ultimately their, their own followers end up in war on a day in which 20,000 people were killed in that battle between those two armies. And one of them to die was Absalom. And if you've ever read the place in the Bible where they come back and they tell David that your son Absalom is one of the casualties, it is one of the most emotional, sensitive moments in the whole Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. And I just want you to listen to kind of the emotion of the moment. The king had heard the news of Absalom's death. His, his opponent, okay, his number one adversary, his son has been killed. And it said the king was shaken. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's fourth degree. And I wonder, we can't, we, we can't say it because we don't know, but I wonder if it was that moment or a moment like that that David sat down to write the 27th Psalm. And he clarifies in these early verses of that Psalm, what, 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 and I'm going to do. And you know, that's where I find people as a pastor. That's where I found myself in my own life at times when it seems like I'm teetering on that fourth degree. God, what, what do I do? What, what, where do I go? What happens here? And some of you who maybe have experienced the fourth degree or you might be in that heat right now, you're hearing me and you're saying, I, I can't believe that, man, he's talking about my world where I'm at right now. And that's what, that's the looming question. God, what do I do about this? Well, I don't think it's a mistake that when you read through the 27th Psalm and you find in those early verses where David is just clarifying, here's all, all this burn, here's all this happens. And then he arrives at the fourth verse and I want to read the start of the fourth verse. One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek. Did, did you hear the simplicity of that? One thing. We, we don't have a, a list here of, of 10 things that you've got to do to rebuild your life. There's this laser focus, just one objective, one goal, one thing to do. And I, I read that and I wonder if we're not seeing some of the heart of God here that, that when we're beat down, when we're burned up and there's, there, there's this sense of where do I go from here that we don't have a God who's saying, come on, man, get up and shake the dust off and pull the bootstraps up and follow these 12 rules in order meticulously. We don't have any of that. We got a tender, compassionate, caring, loving, sensitive God that simply says, I know how much that hurts, 
And I just have one thing for you, just one, one thing, and you can do this, one thing, you can make that happen, just one thing. I, th- I thought about that as I began to develop that a little bit, and I remember telling this story um, many, many years ago in our church about um, a, a Mother's Day that had come along, and and I have three boys in my family, and they were just little guys back then. And I, I said, guys, instead of taking mom out to a dinner like we always do, let's cook something at home. And and what made that a challenge is I don't cook, man. I am not a cook. I married a cook, so I'm not a cook. And obviously the boys, they had nothing to do with it. But I said, let's do this, man. Let's make this happen. And so we gave it a shot. Everybody had the job. Um, I was a head cook. I, you know, I had one of them dealing with the, the table, getting it ready. Somebody else was dealing with the draw, the drinks. And the, the one that I trusted the most, the son I trusted the most, he wasn't the oldest, he wasn't the youngest, but I'm not going to tell you who he was. He was the one I trusted. I said, here's your job, dude. You got one job. Keep an eye on the grill. Just watch the grill for me, okay? I'd put the steaks on the grill. I'd have the corn on the cob, and somebody taught me how to do it on the grill. I'd wrapped it up in foil, still in stock, put it in there. I had it all going. And I told my, my my middle son, I said, just watch the grill, man. I'm inside taking care of the beans, okay? Anything happen, let me know, okay? So I, I'm working on the beans, get stuff ready, doing all that kind of 10, 10, 15 minutes later, I go back, check out the grill. And I, I see my son, the grill's right by our basketball court, and he's just shooting baskets. He's just shooting baskets, oblivious to everything in the world. Actually, he's doing this way, he's left-handed, shooting baskets. And I look over at the grill, and the flames are about 15 feet high, man. They have burned up the stalks of the corn have caught on fire. There is a bonfire going on right next to him. I'm yelling at him, dude, do you not see this? And we get the fire out. The steaks are charred grilled. They, they're ruined. The corn is all black. We sit down. We have dinner that day for Mother's Day. The queen of our world is sitting there. We got green beans and coleslaw that I'd picked up from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and my blessed wife says, oh, the beans are so good. And I said, who we, who we teasing, man? Who we kidding? This is awful. We got in the car and we went and had dinner somewhere and we're pulling out of the driveway. I looked in the rear view mirror and I see the son responsible for the grill in the back. And I just looked at her and I mouthed this. You had one job, one job, but that's not how God comes. That spirit of God doesn't come across that way in frustration. He simply gathers a person in the midst of the darkest of burns and simply says, there's just one, one thing. And it reads like this in the remainder of that fourth verse in chapter 27, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, don't miss the power of Psalm 27, verse 4. 
that when it seems that life can't be any more cruel to you, when someone can't hurt you any more than what they just did, when it seems that life is just more than you can ever recover from, when you will never again be normal, you must hold on to one thing no matter what it costs you. And here it is. When all has been taken away, hold God and his family with your strongest grip. When all has been taken away, hold God and his family with your strongest grip. I want to be a compassionate truth teller here. I'm not sure you ever recover from fourth degree relational burns. I I just don't know that you do. And some people learn to eventually kind of move on and adjust and kind of find a new normal. And from my perspective as a pastor, as I've watched and observed people go through life tragedies like that, there's at least one major difference between those who find it in themselves, the ability to move on, and those who can never move on, who are always stuck in that. And the one difference is this whether or not they have let go of God or whether they've held on to him. Did they hold on to God tightly with the tightest of all grips or did they let go of him at that time? That's the one thing. That's the one thing. And you might be thinking, Dave, that's, that's too simple. There's got to be more to it than that. And if, and if you think that, okay, that's, that's just too simple, man. The fourth degree hits, man, and it grabs me. And the only thing I do is just make sure I hold on to God. Well, remember, if you will, that the verse carries on from verse four. And in the next verse, in the fifth verse, David says, here's why that's the one thing. Here's the, here's the why of it. I know it sounds simple, okay? You feel like, man, I gotta have a, a, a book with 12 different chapters and I gotta do them all chronologically. No, one thing, here's why. And the fifth verse, he says, for in the day of trouble, for when the fourth burn happens, watch, he, God, will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. He will set me high upon a rock. That one sentence describes what only God can do when the fire is hot. Only God can do these things. Nobody else can. Keeping me refers to limitation. That God will decide a point in which he will say, we're not going to let this get any worse for you. Only God can limit that. Hiding me refers to covering. It's a word the Jews would use for what mothers did with their newborn babies, cover them with blankets so that nobody can hurt it. Nothing can happen to the baby. And God will decide, no more hurt, no more. We're done with this, no more. Setting me high refers to rebuilding, a new start, a new day, a new purpose. And you might look at yourself and say, man, I can't even get out of bed today. And God says, but I'm going to give you a new beginning. Listen, nobody but God can do these things for you. Nobody but God. And you get them by gripping him tight when the burn is hot. We've talked, and I've I've tried to be passionate about this through this series, that at every degree burn, there is something specific that God calls us to do. 
So first degree irritation, hold it back, let it go. Hold it back, let it go. Second degree burn anger, go have a calm discussion with the goal of restoration and reconciliation and follow it up with acts of service and love to the offender. That's second degree. Third degree confusion. God, what are you doing? Come to understand that God uses those moments to pull you closer to him. Fourth degree burn, the worst burn of all. Most people never survive. Some never recover. What do I do? You hold on to God and his family like you've never, ever held on. Because if you let it go, if you loosen your grip, that's when you don't survive. 1969, one of the most powerful sermons in American history was preached, not 10 miles from where uh, this message is being filmed right now. In Louisville, Kentucky, the Crescent Hills Baptist Church, John Claypool preached a sermon that became infamous. Most preachers, including me, have to study that message as part of their training. I've referenced it many times at various moments in my life. Claypool's nine-year-old daughter, Laura Lou, whom had become the princess and the queen of that church. Everybody loved bright, cheery Laura Lou. Laura Lou had, had died from leukemia. And on this day in January of 1969... Uh, Claypool was preaching his first sermon since his daughter had died. He'd taken a break from the pulpit. He felt it was time to come back, and he began to preach a word of God to his grieving congregation alongside of him and his wife. Claypool opened up the famous words of Isaiah 40, which talked about God helping some people to fly like an eagle and some people to run on legs of young people that never get weary and some people to walk and never faint. And those beautiful words of Isaiah 40, Claypool described them, and he talked about flying on the wings of an eagle. He described it in those times of life, in his word, were ecstasy, when life just couldn't get better, man. It was as if the favor of God was just poured all over you, and the goodness of our Heavenly Father is just raining and dripping good things in your life. It's wonderful to be on the mountain. And Claypool talked about how beautiful that gift from God was when he gives it to us. And then he confessed to his people but I'm, I'm, I'm not there. I'm nowhere near the mountain of ecstasy. He then talked about what it was like to have legs of young people and run without ever getting tired. He described it as the moments of activity and, and accomplishments at life. When you got this going on and you got that going on and you're making that happen and you're making that impact and life is good here and life is good there, you're serving a purpose. You're making an imprint on the world. And Claypool described as a pastor how he'd spent much of his adult life like that, God using him helping people, making a difference in life, and just moving on through life. And he talked about how wonderful that was. And then he told his people, but I'm, I'm not there. He said ecstasy on the mountain was impossible for him. Running on legs of youth and not getting weary, accomplishing, making... He said, that is inappropriate for me right now. I, I have no desire to do that. 
And then he talked about what it would be like to walk and walk slowly, but don't fall down, don't faint. He described that those on the mountain of ecstasy would look at that and think, man, that's so weak. There's nothing to that. I mean, it happens on the mountain of ecstasy when you're running and, man, life is good. And they look at walking and not fainting as that, that, that's, that's, that, that's nothing. And those who run and are making a difference and they're active and accomplishing and making a, an impact in the world, they look at those of us who just trudge on in life and think that must be so, so sad. And then he looked at his congregation and he said, but I want you to know that where I'm at today is that walking and not fainting of moving slow, of being able to stand and not fall, that that is the greatest gift of all. He said, today, I can't fly and I can't run, but I'm standing up and I'm not falling down because I have held to the father and his family and it's the greatest gift of God of all. I hope the fourth degree never knocks at your door. But if it does, just one thing. That one thing will help you not to fall, not to faint. And, and, and if you can stand up and get to the point where you're not falling, you're not fainting, you're walking, you're walking slow, then maybe by God's grace, you will one day run again. And don't be surprised if God eventually have you soaring in the sky, but not now. Just walk stand, hold him tight so that you don't faint. And that's okay. Father God, I pray for whoever will hear this message at any time who needs it. I pray that they open their eyes at the end of this prayer and they embrace you. They choose to embrace you and your family. And I pray that you will be faithful to that. That that's the moment that you begin to hold upright. That that's the the moment you begin to stabilize. That's the moment that running legs and flying wings begin to develop. Would you please comfort your people who are burned? In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And amen.